Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am your friend, Adam. This is my friend. And also your friend, James. So, the year is 1972, and this is the song. Who is this? That's a good question. I will give you a hint. That was 1972. Six years later, this is the first song on their next record. Dig this shit.
What a song. What a way to announce yourself to the world. That's the Cars, of course. Uh, the first song was a band called Milkwood, uh, Rick Otkosik and Benjamin <laughs> Orchakowski met, I think, in Cleveland and played in some bands together in like Ann Arbor and Detroit. When they moved back to Boston, they formed a band called Milkwood with uh, Jazz Goodkind, who was the lead guitar player on it. I think Ben Orr mostly sang. Rick Okasik wrote just about everything. Uh, and they're obviously kind of Crosby, Stills, Nash-like, on that song anyways. Uh, that sort of fell apart, and they played in some different bands. Jonathan Richmond gave them a name of the next band called Rick and the Rabbits. Uh, and then they had a band called Captain Swing, like Captain Crunch, but Swing. Uh, and eventually they got rid of the bass player and the drummer, brought in David Robinson from the Modern Lovers, Jonathan Richmond's old band. And uh, ben, ben Orr, who had just been singing lead in Captain Swing, became the bass player. Uh, Greg Hawks, who played some key, some uh, saxophone and different horns on the Milkwood record, How's the Weather, became the keyboard player. And Elliot Easton, I think, may have already been in Captain Swing. He's the lead guitar player, and they become the Cars. And uh, they make... A truly great uh, debut record. It's yeah. one of the great debut records um, of our era, certainly. And um, this, of course, is is a tribute we're, we're going to have today for Rick Ocasek and his passing, as we mentioned um, last week, that we were going to do that. And also we'll do one for Daniel Johnston. But mainly I thought – I was really excited when Adam was like, you know, let's go through the cars. Let's – they deserve it. They deserve some deep dive. And it's funny because they sort of run this whole string, and I mentioned it also last week. My high school and college days, you know, the, it, it just I just remember specific touchstones of where I was when I heard these songs. And I was just telling Adam before we went on, The Good Times Roll is probably the first song I ever sang for money in a band. You know, we opened up with it and we used to practice. And probably one of the first songs I started playing drums on because I had this drummer in the band that kept not showing up to rehearsal and we needed to have rehearsal. So I, my brother was a drummer, so I kind of could keep a beat. And I just remember how easy and cool it was just laying down in the pocket. And that's what you get out of the cars. When we go through all the car stuff, they always had such great pocket, great vibe. That song, you're right, introduces them to the world. You get all the cars, entire history in that song. Well, they're an interesting band in a way because uh, 1978's a very interesting time. Punk is uh, at its peak right then. Uh, New Wave is starting to appear in America. And yet classic rock is still huge. And the cars combine a lot of that. They have the guitars of classic rock music, but they have the keyboards and the sort of experimental sounds and Rick Ocasek's vocals especially of a lot of New Wave and art rock music. Prog rock, but with great tight songs you know they combine post-punk new wave art rock influenced by lou reed and brian eno and david bowie with just classic hard rock you know and uh sure i hear a little roxy music in there no that's hear... certainly roxy music well brian eno would have been in roxy music sure. came from roxy music right. uh uh this first album and the first four albums actually are produced by roy thomas baker who had been an engineer for t-rex and free and frank zappa and Work he put together Queen. all the concert recordings that are yeah. get your yayas out right um and he produced the first four Queen albums, Queen, Queen 2, Sheer Heart Attack, and A Night at the Opera. Uh, so the same guy who produced Good Times Roll produced Bohemian Rhapsody right before that. That's pretty uh, amazing. And uh, the same year he did The Cars, he went back and got together with Queen again and produced Jazz. Um, My favorite Queen album. And it's funny, too, because they, they, if I may, 
when when the cars came out, you you touched upon it for a second, but it needs to be said, and I'm sure we'll talk about it throughout this podcast. But the cars were not only all those things you mentioned, and they were very underground and very cool, but they made big pop hits. They were as big as anybody around at the time. Uh, they were making hits right next to Meatloaf, right next to Springsteen, whatever was big. Boston. These were bands that were big at the time. The cars were right there all the time. Oh, much bigger than Springsteen then. Yeah, oh, then. Much, you know, well, much bigger. Well, Springsteen did have Born to Run in 75. Right, but it's not a huge album. It's, it's a groundbreaking album. Right. And he lands him on the cover. It wasn't until Born in the Newsweek. USA. Yeah, when he years, became years later before he becomes really huge. That's a good point. But they do, they're, they're a big pop album. And the first, I think it's, we're going to play all the songs. I think the first four songs on this album are all hits. Is that right? Uh, it's the first three, I think. And then they have... Isn't Don't You Stop after that? Don't You Stop, Don't You Stop. Yeah, right. There are four huge hits on the record and, and a couple minor ones. It's a really interesting idea. You have this almost punk-sounding record, punk new wave record, with these massive, lush, queen-sized harmonies. You also hear a lot of, in the cars, the loud, quiet, loud, or the quiet, loud, quiet thing. that uh, In the groove, in the pocket. It, on things like Just What I Needed or Best Friend's Girl, where they'll have like a, a quiet verse a big chorus or a big pre-chorus a, back to a smaller chorus and you can see that directly carried down from them to the Pixies Nirvana Nirvana who was Kurt was always very clear about how much he learned from the Pixies and uh, I found a quote from Joey Santiago the Pixies guitar player saying that muting thing on the verse comes from listening to the cars completely they were they were studying how the cars made those pop songs work and they would do that small verse and then a massive pre-chorus and then back to a chorus that was different or just a big chorus quiet verse the loud quiet loud thing though right which which smells like teen spirit takes exactly. to the nth degree yeah. and the last and i just saw this because and i didn't know this prior uh i just saw it when rick died somebody had posted the very last gig that nirvana played they played two car songs in it Oh, really? They covered car songs. Uh, they had originally called, I think Just What I Needed is one they used to cover early on, or My Best Friend's Girl, one of them. Best Friend's Girl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's an interesting song, Good Times Roll. One of the things that you'll see that comes up a lot with them, they'll repeat things for a long time at the end, and they'll build and build and build and build. And they don't build by getting more frantic or more like Never. wild. They Never. just build by adding a different element every time. We were talking about it as the choruses are going on, and they add a... Uh, a, a, a tambourine on the guitar and then they add this great they're just singing everything's the same feeling and then they're adding a do 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 they add that keyboard line that goes over the top and then finally they add let the good times good times roll they add the background vocals that come in they add this add a different thing every time that keeps gradually building the song with more and more layers and that sort of attention to detail is key to what makes the cars great because they'll write great uh, guitar riffs they'll write almost like ACDCS guitar riffs great crunchy riffs that go around things then they'll write really cool uh, keyboard melodies that play counterpoint to them and around them very much similar to what The Cure would do a few years later starting The Cure, Cure would layer, layer a drum beat then a bass sound then yeah. a keyboard then another keyboard then a guitar riff right. all these different melodies for you to listen to and enjoy like ear candy and the right. cars are really good at doing that I think they inf influenced all of that that new wave later too like Depeche Mode and The Cure uh, I was going to say also getting back to what you were saying about that particular song it's, it's almost like um, uh a classical music building where each one is a different motif. So I was telling Adam when I was playing, the thing I love the most about Good Times Roll, 
doesn't even come until the last minute of the song. That little melody that the keyboard plays on the top. It's a completely different melody. It's so sweet. You can build a whole song around that. And it only comes in at the end to give a flavor of what you were talking about. We build all the way up, and here's the outro. Where then, And then that's also the first time you hear... Let the, the answering vocals. Yeah. Let the good times roll comes in at the end. Like they yeah, don't after keep... it's, the, it's the repetition after the keyboard thing comes in. Yes. The next time around the chorus, you've got that great background vocal thing that comes in. Yes. And that it's funny because it's such a it only plays a few times that background vocals, but it's such a part of our minds that e- I've noticed both of us every time that chorus <laughs> yes. started around from the very first time they do it in the outro, both of us started to sing Let the Good, good Times Roll because we thought it was coming because <laughs> yeah. in our minds it's been there every time. It's so true. But the truth is, it's only there at the end, but it's so good. And it's memorable because it's at the end. Yeah. And it, because it only, maybe because it only happens once. It's a perfect addition. It's one of the last ones they make in the song. And it's lasted. I said, the first thing I said before we went to tape is, I remember every nuance of that song. And that song was 78, so what is that, 31 years ago now? Is that right? 41. No, 41, 41 years, years ago. ago yeah. And I remember every... And it's not like I listen to these songs over and over again. Obviously, classic rock plays it over and over again over the years. But I probably haven't heard that song, I want to say, three or four years, maybe. And, I mean, what a combination you get in this song. Uh, you get this chugging new wave rhythm guitar. You get uh, art rock kind of keyboards. You got classic rock lead guitar. And you have these massive queen-sized background vocals. Uh, it's quite a combo. And, and it, it's... They're quite a band. I, this is, I want to say this one thing. If there was ever a podcast that I would suggest you listen to in headphones, this is the one. Because I spent this week, I started off just having them on the speakers in the house. Started off playing on my computer, and then I put them on the speakers of the house. And then I just put the headphones on the rest of the time. Because this music is so good in headphones. It is. There are so many layers and details in Cars music that is so fun to listen to where you can actually hear the stereo. It's true, um, and there's a, there's a late-night DJ I used to listen to in New York in the early 90s. He had a thing called For Headphones Only, and we pre- that's the first time I, I ever heard that. Purple Who Rain. That? What's that? You I know, remember that guy. Yeah, you remember that guy? Yeah. And, and he, he, that's the first time I ever heard Purple Rain was on that guy's show. He played a lot of cars and said the same thing. He goes, you know, we play a lot of Pink Floyd here and Queen and, and Beatles with stuff flying from speaker to speaker, but if you listen to the cars, they have it down pat. They don't overdo it, but if you put the headphones on— it's almost like you're hearing a completely different song now. Well, it is, it is symphonic in the composition. For a series of three-minute to four-minute pop songs, the amount of detail in the composition that goes in, the amount of effort they put into composing a million counterpoint parts that play over the main parts that, that just tickle your... They're just ear candy that make the songs... There's a lot of compositional work that goes into making pop songs by these guys. They're, it's brilliant work. And, it is. You know... Uh, it's like a fugue. I don't always feel like I'm getting the most meaning in the world out of a lot of pop songs. But the other detail he adds is a really great ear for imagery. Bizarre imagery. Uh, the next song we're going to play has this great line. You got your nuclear boots and your drip-dried gloves. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. I, I, I love his lyrics. I don't know that I find them completely meaningful. But sometimes you don't need that. You just need... Like imagery that that creates worlds and things to hold on to. It's yeah. an orange in the sky, you know. Like right. I always felt that Steve Tyler had that as well. You, you don't get much out of his lyrics, but they were so fun to listen to. They they p- painted these vivid pictures. Yeah, I mean, and the Beatles were that way on some of the stuff too. They, oh yes. I mean, protected by a silver spoon. I don't know. That's well. It's that's why you know uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and that kind of stuff really broke open the dam for all that kind of writing. Sure. So let's get into this next one. This is my best friend's girl. Dig this.
that you meet He doesn't know the real surprise Here she comes again When she's dancing beneath the starry sky Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so cool. Uh, many things to say. First of all, the thing that has to be said is a lot of these guys, as we mentioned, as Adam mentioned at the top, it, these, are, these are music veterans. These guys have been around. They played. They, Rick Ocasek was 34 when the first record came out. He was born in 44. He's only four years younger than John Lennon, right? He's around two years younger than Paul McCartney. So he grew up with the same stuff they did. You hear the whole lineage of rock and roll history in a song like that, for me. Well, that's one where they're mixing the new wave, weirdly enough, with not classic rock, but almost like classic rockabilly. Like I said, it's Eddie Cochran that... Yes. Those guitars, 
that one, it's it's a weird combination on yeah. that one. And the keyboards even sound like a Hammondy keyboard as opposed to like more synthesizer, like the first song that sounds kind of space age. You well, know? it's almost Farfisa. If you'd gone through the weird minor chord things, you'd almost think it's Question Mark and the Mysterians. It's like that. He's <laughs> eh, 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 eh. got that yeah. Farfisa organ sound almost. <laughs> That's true. But he's not playing those notes on it. Right. You know, but yeah, I agree. Tight as a drum, background vocals. And, and the, once again, as we talked about in the first song that we played there off the first record, which this is also on, you get that, my best friend's girlfriend, at the end. It's the, it's the thing I remember most about the song, and it's in the outro. Yeah. It's crazy. Wonderful songwriting. Wonderful vocal there. Real attitude in that vocal. He always had some great sort of queer attitude, like a very off-kilter attitude. Not so much like um, David Byrne. But in that, it's got a little that, bit of that in it, though. It's it's a little less, uh, you know, the the neurosis is a little more tied down, <laughs> and not so. It's not bursting out, which is the cool thing about David Byrne. Right. But yeah, it's it's there too. You know, yeah. um, this next song is the first Ben Orr song you get on the record, right? Um, which was the hit, the huge first hit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just what I needed. Uh, ben Orr sings. But one of the things I want you to notice about this song is. What one of the things that makes this band great is the drummer David Robinson, who came from the Modern Lover. So a few years earlier, this is the guy doing the drums on Roadrunner, Road one of the great pounding rock songs of all time. Yes, and uh, but understatedly pounding, not punk in your face. That's the thing that they 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 have in common with with those guys. They have, there was a groove to, the, to oh yeah, the but it's driving, lovers. driving, absolutely like pounding driving. drums, right? And uh, and a talking head is in that band too. Strangely, enough. oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. You get Jerry Harrison as well on keyboards in that band. But on this song, I want you to notice, because the great thing about, he's able to play these almost mechanistic drums in that they're so straight and simple, but they don't feel computerized or straight because they feel so coiled with tension to me, all of his drum playing. Even as it's simple, it feels completely coiled and tense. So when the rolls pop out, they seem almost jerky and exciting, but perfectly in the groove. Like on this song, you'll, you'll see the drums are, are just there. Um... They're just there on the guitar hits at first. Go, 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 you know, and then and then when the verse comes in, you just get the snare, just the snare on the verse. And then when the whole kit comes in on the second half of the verse, it just comes in. There's no roll. There's no nothing. It just starts playing the full beat on the whole kit. It's so understated, but so powerful. And when he does pop his rolls in, they're just taut. They come right at the ends of lines and around things. And you just... There's so much tension in his playing that it, it it he's a spectacular drummer. I mean, so the two I, I just think the drums are really interesting on all these songs. I love his drumming. It's Agreed. so different from what I'm used to, but I absolutely love it. It's so coiled and like it's almost electric that way, and uh, without being wild, it's very creative though. So check out that and check out. Ben Orr because this is the first vocal you'll yes. hear from him today, and, and he's a great singer. Two things I'd like to say real quick. To piggyback on what you were saying, if you listen to Queen Jazz, which is my favorite Queen record, I think it was absolutely Thomas Baker's production on the first Cars record, because that album came out in 78 as well. He's probably working on them back to back. His roles on some of those songs, like Fun It, and some of those songs on that record, uh, Fat Bottom Girls, that reminds me of the drumming on this record. The way, it, exactly how you just described it. Tight, taut, in and out, and onto the groove. Which Queen ends up becoming later on with the game with uh, doom, doom, doom. Even the little fills that, that uh, Roger Taylor plays yeah, yeah. on that. The second thing I want to say is this is probably, 
I'm just going to say, I always say the top five or top ten because I don't want to be held to it. This is one of my favorite all-time openings of any rock and roll song. The opening of this song is so great. I love it. Oh, we've got one of mine coming up in a couple songs after this. <laughs> uh, but I'll, and I'll tell you why when we get there. But let's, let's check this out. Just right. This is the first big hit off the record. Yes. Well, the first single there. All big hits.
that is a tour de force in arrangement. The beginning of that song, everything that Adam said, and what I was saying about that, bam, 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 and then it goes to the double, and then the snare just comes in, and then very subtly he comes off of the snare, and the bass just kind of comes in just to beat off. I always love that. It's weirdly boom. late, yeah. And then that keyboard throughout the whole thing. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's a guitar riff going Total on, song. Yeah. but it's not just a guitar riff because there's this great counterpoint melody on the keyboards that like picks that just pulls your ear to what it does is it pulls your ear to stereo because right. that guitar is happening on one side and usually the keyboard's happening on the other, and so it pulls your ear in the two different and directions. And not in a superfluous cool. way. It's right there, all part of the song. It's a great. They're great songsmiths. They put these songs together so well, and. You know, a, a moment on Elliot Easton, who is one of my favorite guitar players of all time, and I think he has, uh, you know, wrote and played the greatest guitar solo in my mind ever uh, in a small pop song, not long, drawn out. I'm talking about somebody that can do something in eight measures. He does it there. That is the beginning of that. Like right on that thing, yeah. he goes up the octaves, and it's just so melodic and so fun and within the structure of that song. And I had this debate years ago, and it's funny, we're pointing it out now. Do you consider the Cars a guitar band or a keyboard band? Because a lot of people hear them as a keyboard band, especially with their biggest hit, that uh, 84 uh, uh, record, the 83 record, uh, a Heartbeat City. There's a lot of keyboards laid well, on Well, there that. are times in their career where they're more keyboard heavy. To me, what the, what's great about them is... The combination of the two things. That's because right. Because they're very much a guitar band. And I think they suffer a little bit on the records where Elliot Easton's more put in a box. Although the exception to that is probably Heartbeat City, where the, the songs are so good, some of them. But, but, but the lack of guitar on the songs that aren't as good is where you it, it really suffers because it doesn't have that. And it's why I think this first album never really gets dated because the guitars are so strong in it that it never really seems anything but timeless kind of and on the records a great song you can get away with a sound that gets dated and and the songs on heartbeat city that are the best songs are so spectacular that it doesn't matter but it's the it's the songs that aren't as good that might have been carried by just this great sound they have on this record which is where other records suffer to me it's in the 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 songs that are just okay that are still great on this record right but aren't uh on some of the others you know uh and admittedly although i always follow the cars and there's parts of their career that I really like and some of their, their songs that I really like, this to me is their finest hour collectively for me. Because again, and I said, that, I looked over to you and I'm like, this stuff is just not at all dated. You play that, and I'm, I'm saying it's not dated in the sense where it sounds just as good now as it did in 1978, but you could have played some of these songs with different sounds, obviously, in 68, 58. You know what I mean? They're just great rock and roll songs and I think you're right the, I think the guitar is the difference that just makes the difference doesn't date well I don't I mean I, I don't know I, I think the lack of it is a problem on other things I think what makes this so great is that that duality of those keyboards Agreed. and the guitars like the fact that the combination on these songs and that they're both so strong is a big part of what makes it so great that they're both there um, right, which is why the answer to that question is you can't really say and that's why the, the question is interesting because a lot of people hear the keyboards more and other people hear the guitars more I would lean more towards guitars but they're, they are equal parts very integral to how well these songs come across and Greg Hawks the keyboard player is a big part of a lot of this music the arrangements uh, their style he was a big part in getting them to dress certain ways and helping get the cover art things to happen mm. Uh he had a, his. He came up with the name for the band. Um, 
the whole style of it uh, was very much him in some ways. Right, and um, even the cover of this record of the woman smiling with the deep red lipstick with her, with her, with her hands wrapped around a, uh, a wheel of what looks like, you know, a 58 Pontiac or something. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it looks like a 1950s cigarette ad or something. But yet, I think the back of the record has them pictured and they're dressed completely like the specials yeah. or very new wave, yeah. Yeah, and they have all the red and blue the outfits. Red and, red, the, yeah. red and white. Red and white mostly with some other colors in there. Right. That's, that's all him. That's all Greg Hawks. That's cool. Um, um, uh, I don't know that I, it doesn't occur to me that it is one or the other. It, it is the combination that makes it so unique. Great, great. Um, this next song uh, is another Okasic vocal, I think. Uh, I will tell you in all of two seconds. I'm going to uh, guess yes. yes. This yeah. is your all I've got tonight. It, and it's really interesting. It begins with these pounding drums and power chords, just all pounding drums, power chords. And then you just get Rick Okasic over that spitting out lines about all the stuff he does. I don't mind this. I don't care about that. All things he doesn't give a shit about. Uh, and then you get, like, then it changes to these arpeggiating keys and, and fuzzed out guitars playing arpeggios and building to this, again, cars by way of queen harmony vocal chorus, uh, complete with these orchestral sort of synth flourishes. Right, staying in the groove. A yep. couple other things to notice, because the details, I think, are what make some of these so interesting, which is just one, one thing to go back on. I find it so fascinating in the middle of just what I needed uh, on the third verse when all of a sudden the beat reverses itself it's out like of nowhere. They start playing upbeats instead of downbeats. <laughs> yes. And then it just like does that for like song. four or eight bars and then it just goes back to playing. But, but it's, it is, it's reggae, but without actually changing anybody else's playing. Correct. Except the drum, it's weird. Drums and bass just reverse themselves. That is such a weird, queer thing to do. And that's um, when that weird keyboard comes in. Yeah. The whole thing's bizarre <laughs> for no um, reason, but it's just fun, you know? Uh, check out also the break at the end of every chorus there's this breakdown and it's like this galloping heavy metal drums and chunky guitars topped by this like cherry of a stinging lead guitar moment uh, tonight um and in the latter verses you hear of Elliot Easton just tearing the shit out of his guitar after he answers every vocal line with these really vicious leads and it's really kind of cool way to like answer but uh, he also has a great solo later in the song. Um, oh yes, and, right. and 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 you think it's just a solo outro because it's going. It goes on for a while, and yeah. you think that's they're ending the song, and then right before the song ends, they just go back real quick and hit you with one more time through that chorus, and then just end it because it's a damn strong chorus. Yeah. And I, I, just a, a quick note about Rick Ocasek's deadpan sort of detached style of singing, uh, which is an understated way we were talking about earlier of more understated way, I, sh- I should say, than what um, you get out of David Byrne from Talking Heads. This is a classic example of that because it's kind of a smarmy lyric and it's kind of a, you're all I've got tonight. And uh, in a way he says, I need you. It's almost, it's almost lascivious in the way he does it, but he does it in such a detached manner that he's, it's almost not robotic, but kind of weird, not human. You know, do you know what I'm trying to say with the, with the way he sings these? I get this it, song he, but he really spits them out on this one. It reminds me a little, almost a little more of Richard Hell, where he's spitting. I, you know, I don't care if you do this. I don't care. You can mock me. I don't care. You can some, rock me just about anywhere. It's all right. Yeah. And then massive chorus. But check it out. Yeah. You're all I've got tonight.
had to stick in that little Bela Lugosi at the end. I need you. <laughs> what a great song that is. On every, first of all, the parsley of that song is the keyboards. The steak and eggs is Elliot Easton. He is rocking and rolling all the way through that damn thing. He's throwing those licks in. And, and that lead that you mentioned before is just so I, – I, I don't know if this for a fact, but I would be stunned if he didn't chart these things out. They're just so musical and weird and interesting. You know, I interviewed Ace Freely, unfortunately, after my Kiss book came out, the Shout It Out Loud. And the big thing in that book was Bob Ezrin could not get Ace Freely to play the melodies that Bob wanted him to play. And, and then when I interviewed Ace, he's like, yeah, I was fucking frightened of that guy, man. He's like, I don't, he wanted me to chart things. I just – I go and I go, you know, and, and that's why everybody loves Ace. But – this is a different kind of thing, but just as ass-kicking rock and roll great. I mean, that is a great rock and roll guitar song. I mean, I don't know that he charted them, but it could just be that they're so good and memorable, and we've heard them so many times that we just remember them. It's possible. Yeah. It's very, you know, I'm not saying they're robotic. It does sound like a feel thing, but they're just so perfect. He just ends, he, like, at the halfway through the bar, and then he comes down, and at the end of the measure, he's perfectly right there, and he gets there. You yeah. know, it's just so great. And um, what was the other thing I wanted to say about it? The, well, you know, I, I just love that chorus to death. It's a great chorus. And, you know, uh, it has the new wave sensibilities. You're hearing that new wave sensibility come in. We've talked about how they, they appeal to all the different eras of rock and roll because they're a great rock and roll band, period, regardless of what era they're in. But you could hear the new wave aspect of this in that song for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, there's also very much the metal, the kind of hard rock. Yeah, it's really cool. It um, is. Yeah. Actually, and, that's the next song. That's not there. That's the next song. Oh, that's right. But, but that's let's right. say that's funny. It's in our heads, yeah, both yeah. of our heads. But uh, one last thing about the galloping, the, the, you know, the, the drums that he puts in, the, the, different, the different drum parts are coming through in all these songs. Like, I'm really paying attention to them now. Yeah, they're the points great, you make they? just great. I yeah. mean, this next song is uh, another Ben Orr vocal. And the rest of the songs on the record are Ben Orr vocals. To me, <laughs> this might be my favorite song on the record. Oh. Uh, Elliot Easton's playing this head-banging kind of simple guitar riff that nearly makes this an ACDC song. I really think there are a lot of ways in which they play the, ki- the same kinds of riffs as ACDC does in some ways, except they combine them with these weird keyboards and they do them a little differently. Mm-hmm. But... um. It's also the best or vocal on the album to me. I love, to me it is. I love, this might be the best vocal of all time for him, except for maybe Drive, which is later on. Um, and, and even, this is, a, this is on a record that, you know, just what I needed was yeah. everywhere that summer. Every, I just remember being on the, the log flume at, uh, you know, in Long Branch, New Jersey, and it over and over again. They play this song, they play a couple songs. They play this song, they play another song. They, I mean, this was a massive hit. That, yeah. That's, you know, the record and that single. So for you to say that is, and I do agree, this is one of my favorite car songs. I mean, I, I, and it's an overlooked one because I don't think it even was a single. I'm not sure it even was. But this song, it, it's really weird. It begins with this completely furious opening. That we just did. That we then, both remember. Which then just absolutely goes away and is never heard again. Until the very end of the song when they play it when again. When they close it. But it's wild. It's a really catchy, yeah. really powerful opening. Completely furious opening to a song. And then it's just never touched again. Uh, and, and it goes from there into this pattern of this sort of like tough guitar uh, riffing for the first half of a line. And then at the end of it, at midway through each line, uh, a vocal line, it, it releases to these arpeggios and picking guitar and electric piano at the end of each line. And in a second verse... 
they they again with the tough guitars and then opens to the picking guitars and the and the electric piano but with a kind of squealing synth over the top of that uh and it has this jerky intense nervous drums with these great utterly controlled but tight rolls at the end of each line that just seem to like burst out of it for a second and then right back in it always completely in the pocket uh you have completely great soloing on this song by Elliot Easton to me. All, just throughout, little riffs here and there. Uh, I mean, all over the album you really do. But uh, at the end, notice how they combine the chorus, gun, 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 guitar riff with the... The second half of each verse line, instead of being in the verse with the strumming and then that... It's like it, they're singing it over the chorus riff, mm-hmm. guitar riff, but the second half is the verse second half of the line. <laughs> uh, it's interesting how they do that. It's a very interesting thing to do. Uh, and then right at the end, after the last solo in the song, that thing comes back just for one brief moment. <laughs> to close it. And then it's done. Uh, it's really wild. That they save it for the very beginning and the very end of the song. I, it's called Bye Bye Love. Uh, taken from an Everly Brothers song, but it's completely different. Right. Uh, and I, man, I just love this song. I love this, the vocal and how it builds throughout the song. Substitution, mass confusion, clouds inside your head. Yeah, that's right. I, I love the way he sings that late as it, like the, you know, he's repeating one of the verses in a completely different way. And it's just, it, it's so rock and roll I don't know what else to call it yeah, Ben Orr's yeah. vocal on this song just kills me yeah um, and it's and it's and it's different compared to Ocasek they're very much the same in some of these songs where you really it's hard to tell them apart sometimes but in this case you could totally tell this is a different singer yeah, singing yeah. this song yeah um, it's more obvious on this record I think than on some of the others you know but uh, this is a great vocal and, uh, so and a great song I just I love all the little touches they put into making it interesting just things like having a verse guitar riff with these descending lines and a chorus says and then later in the song instead of the verse riff going and combining that with the verse it's just a it's just really interesting way of doing things and reinventing parts of the same themes and reusing them in different ways that's what makes Easton so great he's just one of the great guitar players totally underrated in every possible way but all of them too it's it's the the way they make use of each other and the way, and this is something you notice on later records, I think at times when the band is falling apart, they just don't seem as excited about playing with each other and they're not getting off on each of the things that somebody else did and then doing something really great to compliment it themselves. Right, it's not as inventive. They're, they're just not, they're not feeding off each other and playing really great stuff that plays into all the things each of the other guys is doing. They're just doing stuff that's good. But on this record, you can hear them reacting to everything each other's done, having compositional ideas that are related to and inspired by the thing the guy did right before it, and or that echo or provide counterpoint to it. It's very... They're like furiously creative musically, right. clearly excited about what they're doing. And, and you can see on some of the later records that fade, and that's a problem. And it's funny, when they get back together on the last record, Move Like This, years later, in 2011, they hadn't done anything for like 15 years. And right away, you can hear they're excited to play together. It just sounds different. But that's a, a discussion for another time. Right. But uh, I'm going to play this for you because I, I fucking love the song. And just really dig the beginning and the very end. <laughs> but the whole thing in the middle is killer too. <laughs>
Beethoven symphony ending, you know? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a symphony. I want to say something, though, I, and I, I don't think I've ever asked him this, but, you know, I hear a lot of Immergluck in Easton, that style, and it reminds me a little bit of Mick Ronson. Well, I think Immergluck's very, very influenced by Mick Ronson, I would think, for sure. It's one of his favorite guitar players. Yeah, ever. and so I hear Elliot Easton in that, in that category of that kind of, like, biting, ballsy sound that 
Immer gets in a lot of the songs and and other stuff that he's done, not only with County Crows, but you know, Monks of Doom and that kind of stuff. And speaking of which, how about that keyboard solo, which was right out of like Rick Wakeman? That was a yeah. crazy keyboard it's solo. Fantastic, like isn't it? It's like completely. <laughs> that's what I mean. They, they've got this complete like journey to the center of your mind kind of Rick Wakeman <laughs> thing, and then right back into this total like crunchy guitar. It's just it's so. And you don't ever think of them as being disparate things. They just feel completely natural side by side in this song, yep. which is what makes what's it's so amazing to me is how effortless they've melded these different things so that you don't even think about them in a way because mm-hmm. they're such, they're creating such perfect pop, which is what the Beatles did. We take all this weird stuff, put it together, and somehow make it just sound like a perfect pop song. Right. You know. Um, and I was just I, finishing up reading that uh, this summer. Uh, reviewing that book I told you Solid State about the Beatles last days and recording Abbey Road and it's called Solid State because it's the first time they brought in a Solid State um, mixing board for you know the record and it changed they changed the way it sounded if you listen to Abbey Road it, it, it sounds differently than most of the pre-Solid State records which is the guy's point in it but the, one of the observations that all the people that worked at Abbey Road said is when two guys were in, the, in there kind of working it out like Paul and John or George would work with Paul on something it was good. He said when the four of them got together and they played, there's this weird magic that kind of happened. And that's when things got done. And that's what you're saying about the cars. When they lost that magic of the four of them digging, playing together. Five you, of them. The five of them, excuse me. You lose, you know, you lose the, the inventiveness and the really cool aspects of what you're talking about on this record, which has it all. It has all those elements. Well, it, they, do, they still do great things when they have songs that are good enough. But it's it's in the songs that you might not consider the hits that the records really suffer when that's not going on. You know, like right. you can still get by on the other material, but it's the other songs that are weaker um, to me. There's nothing weak on this whole record, no. really. I mean, no. I don't really love Don't You Stop. But every single... We could have played you almost every song on this record with the exception of maybe that one. And I know people who love that song. So, I mean, this they used to joke that they called their first record The Car's Greatest Hits. Right, until um, Heartbeat City, which was their biggest... That was their Born in the USA. It's their biggest was- because... It's in the age of MTV, and they make great videos with all the songs, and they have, and the hits are huge, huge hits, yes. the ones that are hits. But you might think it's drive. not as strong a record. The, no. the songs that no. aren't hits aren't as good as the ones that aren't hits on this record. On this record, you know, "Bye Bye Love" and "Moving in Stereo." It's so funny as when that song ends. I'm so used to this record that and you know, which is this next song, "Moving in Stereo," which is very famously used in uh, the scene, the sort of dream sequence, master, maybe the most famous dream sequence masturbation scene ever in movies, which right. is when Judd Nelson, not Judd Nelson, uh, Judge Reinhold leaves the pool in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Well, he, no, he's he's the one masturbating. Well, he leaves Phoebe the pool Cates. and he goes oh, inside. He goes, right, but right, what right. you see is Phoebe Cates getting out of the pool while he's, and it's, it's set to the music of, uh, moving in stereo, moving in stereo right. the the instrumental track to moving in stereo with her slowly getting out of the pool and walking towards him, and then she opens the door to the bathroom and you realize he's been in there masturbating right, and he right. gets busted. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next album. One year later, nineteen seventy nine. This is Candio. Uh, now they had a lot of material left over from the first record, a lot of songs that they were playing. Uh, Hotel Queenie. Uh, you, you hear it on the bootlegs. Uh, the only one that, but they decided to write all new stuff. The only one that made it on the record from that period was this song called Night Spots. Uh, 
the other choices they made on this record was they, they asked Roy Thomas Baker to kind of tone down the, the multi-tracked harmonies. They still wanted to have the same kinds of harmonies, but they didn't want to double track as many of them. And they didn't want the huge lush queen thing. They wanted it to be a little more rock and roll. Uh, it, to me, it's hard to tell the difference much. They're the same kinds of harmonies. I, I know I can feel a subtle thing, but they're still pretty big. Yeah, to let me, me listen because I, I, that's funny. That's the first time I've heard that, and I never. You're right. I never. I could never in all the in all the Cars albums. They always seem to have that. Yeah, I don't think one they, aspect. I think they, I think they used they did the same kinds of harmonies. They just maybe didn't double track them, meaning record each harmony twice so that they'd have a thicker version of it. Sure, which uh, Queen but did. Yeah, I, I think they still had some of it. Uh, one last thing to mention is that the cover art on this album is the last piece of art ever done by the artist Alberto Vargas before he died. David Robin he'd actually been in retirement for a while, and David Robinson talked him out of retirement at the age of eighty three to do one last piece. And he did the cover to Candy O, that, that reclining girl. It's a beautiful oh, Vargas heart, picture. Hood. Yeah, um, it is. The first song on this record is uh, Let's Go, which is a great song it to is. me. Uh, yep. And uh, maybe my favorite on the record. Uh, another Benjamin Orr vocal. Um, I love that there's an interesting thing about this. that uh, We've talked about it before, the steady drive of the drums. But they're really compositionally thought out because at the end of each line in the verse, in the verse there's a double hit. He's like, duh, 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 and just a little double hit at the end of each line. Mm, yeah. That double hit becomes the actual whole beat in the pre-chorus over those great lines, uh, she's my frozen fire, she's my one desire. So the, the thing that he's been tagging each line with becomes kind of the whole beat in that section. And you'll notice also in the latter half of the, uh, the pre-chorus, there's just this picking guitar and, and, and the pounding drums Pounding and David Robinson playing his floor tom, and Ben Orr just singing over that, and it gradually builds and builds until uh, it just releases into this propulsion of the chorus and these great big harmonies again over "Let's Go." I like the nightlife, baby, which is right, right. I, I just you like love the nightlife. Well, you know the, the thing that's so great about this song, much like uh, "Let the Good Times Roll," it really does herald the, this record as the next step in the Cars' evolution. But it also harkens back to what everyone loved about the cars. They're basically saying, you know, you know, everyone loves us because of this. Here's more of this, and we're going to do other stuff in this record. This could have fit on the first record as well. Yeah, I think most of this record is like that. It's yep. got some different things, uh, writing-wise, maybe, but uh, it's a lot of the same tones as the first record. Yeah, yeah. Not until um, Panorama do they go another direction. I, think. I just love that. Let's go. <laughs> I like the night. Just the way he sings. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, and the song's not called I Like the Nightlife Baby It's called Let's Go Let's Go That's right. uh, So this is Benjamin Orr And the Cars can't, From the record Candy O
Scars are one of those bands you'd never want to follow on a bill. <laughs> Imagine following that. Like, everything's great in that. Everybody is kicking ass. The drums are amazing. The bass line's totally grooving the shit out of everything. That whole keyboard part is a whole other song again. The guitars are super cool. That crazy wow, wow, wow. That thing going on and the, the vocals. It's just, they're all great. All these guys are playing their ass off on that song. Yeah, I, I, I love the song. I, I think it's a great, great tune. Um, it, it might be my favorite song on the record. It, I, just, it, yeah. I think it is. Yeah, and it's, it's the best opener. It's the best way to open it, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, another song I want to play is it's called, is a few songs later. It's called "It's All I Can Do," and it's another Ben Orr vocal. And in a lot of ways, he's really he's the star on this record for a lot of the the best songs. He just kills the vocals on them. Um, and it has this great synth keyboards that weave in and around the voice on the choruses. Uh, I just want to point out compositional things because I I think they're you can just listen to these songs and enjoy them. They're so much fun, but. It's really interesting to see what goes into making them that way. Um, it, the, the lead guitars on the song are great. Notice how, like, in the first half of each uh, a verse, they're just these whole notes drums. And then in the second half of each verse, they turn into these really crunchy power chords that, 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 uh, That's right. that yeah, echo yeah. The, the lines. Uh, it's a song about a girl he had a fling with who, uh, who meant everything to him, even if it's just a fling to her. And it's got this sort of sad, bittersweet thing, which is... Uh, and Ben Orr sings these kind of songs so well. Um, he's got that romance in his thing and, and yeah. sort of sadness in it. Um, my note here says C Drive, uh, which we'll get to later on another podcast probably. It also has this really great, hugely melodic guitar solo uh, and lead lines from Elliot Easton that echo and sort of uh, almost match the sound of Greg Hawke's really beautifully melodic uh, synth lines the truth is in the main solo they're actually both soloing at the same time uh, almost like Dixieland but the uh, the synth on one side is a little quieter it's mixed further down than the guitar to sort of accentuate the fact that it's a guitar solo but it's really the both of them soloing and it's one of the things that makes it so exciting as they build to the, sort of the climax of it uh, one more thing to notice is how in the last verse the synth is holding pads over the verse, these really kind of eerie, beautiful synth lines. They don't always change on the notes, on the one, on the chord changes. They do occasionally, but mostly they just change on these weird offbeats in the middle of the lines in almost a erratic way. They just sort of change when they change, and somehow it makes it really upsetting and sadder that they're not changing the notes as the rest of the band changes the chords. They just kind of happen a little later. Right. So it's almost like it's an afterthought. It's weird. It's an interesting choice. Um, and it really works. But I had to listen to it a few times to figure out what was going on there that was giving me that feeling it was giving me. And if you listen in the last verse, you'll hear that that keyboard is playing these synth lines and they're changing, but not with everything else. They just kind of seem to be happening erratically in the background on their own time schedule. Right, um, and, and it leads cool. to the tension of the lyric and the way he's singing it. Yeah, he's very emotional on the song, and and he, you're right. Or as opposed to Okasik, who could be fun loving and playful, and like I say, in a, in in some senses, very inhuman in his in, a, in not in a robotic way, but this is it's like a weird again the David Byrne thing. But there's something soothing about Or's vocals always to me. Yeah, and so, and, and Drive is an excellent example of that. Too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I love the song. This is it's all I can do.
excellent point on the guitar and keyboard. The sounds are there are very similar. So you yeah. really can't tell. And that, that guitar solo, the sound of that, and I think it was double. You know, remind me of, remind me of Tom Schultz's sound that he got for the first Boston record that blew all our heads off. Like, what the hell kind of sound? It's like what Eddie Van Halen sound on his first record, on the first Van Halen record. It's just completely alien to everything else that's going on in that song. The song's very kind of dead sounding and it's chugging along. Like, and my, 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 I don't mean dead sounding like dead, it's dragging. I mean, the, everything sounds crisp and clean. There's no lot of echo going on. It's very, the guitars are very chugging, just like the first record. Then all of a sudden this guitar thing comes in and it's just filled with atmosphere and sounds yeah. like it's in a giant stadium like Greek theater and that just goes away. I wonder if that one's <laughs> Ebo'd. He does play some solos with Ebo every now and then. You know the thing, it's like a little vibrating thing that sonically vibrates a guitar string? Right. He does do solos with that sometimes. I love that and I forgot to mention it. That chorus keyboard is so cool. Very what a great cool. melody that is. He's so good at adding a whole new melody in songs and just doing it effortlessly and if it was gone from the song, the song would still be good, but it takes it to another level when he brings it in. And it's the things we're all humming a lot of times in the car when we're driving. It's crazy. But it's, he's, he's got a knack for finding a different kind of cool melody to throw in there. And yeah. it works every time. It's very creative stuff. Um, the next song we want to play is uh, finally get you a Rick Ocasek vocal from this record. Uh, I, I just, this song, Double Life, which I absolutely – another one I love. It has one of those great reserved – Rick Ocasek lyrics that I don't know what it means, but it sounds so fucking good. It, it takes a fast car lady to lead a double life. Yeah, you know it's a. <laughs> you've got your, what is this? You got your front door baby and your backseat wife. I can't remember. It's, it comes later, but that first line. <laughs> it takes a fast car lady to lead a double life. Yeah, I, I can't even sing like him. I can't even begin to. It's That's kind of like what it is. And and the other thing too that the, these songs, this this record suffers. And I say that lightly because it doesn't suffer that much. But it does suffer a little bit from following up the greatness, the unbelievable explosion of the Cars' first record, the you know eponymous, eponymously titled first record. And it comes I, – I had memories of this coming out in 1980, but you said it was 1979, maybe late in 79. But it's only – basically it's the next year. Yeah. No, yeah. They, they make three records in three years, right? Right. So I, I guess Panorama is 80. 80, yeah. yeah. Panorama is 80. Yeah. Uh, I mean – it suffers from not being the the best songs are great and they're as good as the songs for the most part on the first album. It's it's the other ones that aren't as good, you know. That that's and it suffers from not being. I would call the first one pretty much a perfect record. It's, it's masterpiece, and I wouldn't say this one's a perfect record. It, it's 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 got some great great songs. Right. Um, Let's go. It's all I can do. Double life. I think are all great. Uh, Candio is interesting, and you can hear some of the the ways in which. Uh, they're heading towards Panorama on Candia, which is almost an EDM track with guitars occasionally. Uh, it's true. A lot it it almost sounds like an EDM club dance track yeah. with, uh, with that, that happens to have some really cool rock guitars at times. Sure. But it's a... Uh, but a departure for sure from the first two records. It's not a single, but that is a song which, although not a single, became a huge staple, staple of radio for years. Um, uh, Dangerous Type is a great song. Um, the last song on the record, I think. Um, I always think Dangerous Type is... When I'm in the verse of Dangerous Type, I think it's about to break into the chorus of Psycho Killer. And instead, it goes to the Dangerous Type chorus, which I think is interesting. But uh, uh, Double Life is a classic car song, though, to me. And it's a classic Rick Ocasek vocal. Um, uh, it has this great picking guitar that runs throughout the whole song in and around this really cool bass pulse 
just in the in the verses which are very sparse uh and there is this great again i can't come back to it enough because you know there we'll miss it later but elliot easton soloing is magnificent at one point he kind of sounds like a little like carlos santana with the tone he gets on this song it's so weird it he doesn't play anything like santana would play but it sounds a little like it's santana playing on a car song for a minute for a second or two uh he's just a huge star in this band early on and and as they try other things, he gets put a little in a box at times on other records where they make keyboards more of the thing as they're really experimenting. Um, but it, it, they lose some of the balance in doing that. Um, and he's a, he's a major contributor, a major contributor to this band. And, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, they are very much Rick Ocasek's machine, but they are also very much in that he writes everything. But they are really, really collaborative as a band and in the, in the composition in the arrangements they are they are at their very best they are furiously creatively contributing all of them and they do great stuff when they're not doing that but it's rarely whole albums of great stuff when they're when it's different um and we'll get to that later but uh, we're gonna play you double life right now it takes a fast car lady i love rico Kasich. <laughs>
I, I love the uh, I love that chorus lyric. Well, lift me from the wonder maze. Alienation is the craze, and it's all going to happen to you. Uh, that basically sums up the Cars and all the new wave music at the time in two lines. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Lift me from the wonder maze. Alienation is the craze. You know. <laughs> I, I, I kind of love that. It's sort of the whole attitude of how he's singing, what the music's about, in some ways. Yeah. Um, and this is right on the cusp of now the cars are joined furiously by Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson and Squeeze, and it's starting to come fast and furious now from, from the UK. And I would say that song is the first time that I recognized what you said earlier, which is there isn't that fat, fat, big, you know... The uh, harmonies. You're all I've got tonight. Yeah. That one is just way less. It's just, it's there, you know, the ahs and the... You know, they're not as big. No, no, I'm not sure it's a smart thing to do tuning those down, toning those down because it was they were so outrageous that it made it very interesting. And that's an example. Another, the outro of that song is kind of long. Yeah, but they're not doing things that are as interesting or as great creatively over it like they do on some of the other songs we played, where they really do like come up with a lot of great stuff to do. Build in there. and build and build. Yeah, they kind of don't do as much of that on that one. It just and it's not bad. It, it goes on perfectly well, and I kind of like it. It's a nice pop song, but it's not. But it doesn't have the creativity in the end to to sustain the outro the same way. My best friend's girl goes on forever. Uh, you know, a lot of those songs do, and it's just not as as good in the end. And and the chorus is a killer. So. They kind of waste the chorus by not really driving it home in Cars fashion, ironically. happen to you. It's very poppy, you know? It's almost Motown-esque, but it kind of gets lost. It's not in your face. Yeah, it's real relaxed. It's almost like they were planning to do other stuff in there, and they kind of just don't get around to doing it. <laughs> right. And it just, it just sort of keeps... They repeat. There's some nice guitar soloing played around it, but it's pretty mixed down, right. the guitar at that point. And it's the um, single. So, right? That was the... That was the it's single. one of them. I think it's the third single, yeah. maybe. The second single. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know... It's, 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 I love that song. I love a lot of parts of that song. It, it doesn't completely come together the way some of those other ones do. But again, unfair, because again, they hit it out of the park on every aspect. Every song, every change, every musical, um, creative aspect of what they were doing the cars in their in their debut record so they come up with this one a year later and it's not as strong but it's totally understandable the best parts are still really really the best good. parts are still great yeah but, the high uh, notes are very very you good. know and also i we didn't play candio but candio is a fantastic song it is, it is. um but we want to end with well the, the next record is is panorama a right. year later in 1980 uh, it's a much more experimental in a way they're really trying to do different things the moodiness of keyboards and electronic music, they're very interested in that right there. And the songs move much more in that direction. It was it sold a ton at first because any Cars album that came after Candio yeah. and the first album... But we were all album, disappointed with it. I we're going that. to. But everyone bought it because there was no other way to listen to things back then. Right. So it's deceptively huge. But uh, it didn't fare as well with critics and it, I don't think people liked it as much. That You know, you didn't hear much on the radio? Uh they, one of the things they did was trying to tone, tone down the low end of the bass and the drums uh, in the production of it and uh, turn up the keyboards a little bit. Yeah, not as much to- guitar. As you said, they put Elliot Easton a little bit in a box in this record. The other thing that, and I was going to say it earlier, you know, the first two Cars records absolutely herald the 1980s. They absolutely do. It's got that new wave, and we're now going to move into the new romantic period and the new wave into the early 80s and uh, the big sounds, the big drum sounds, the big all the different things that 
that um, Thomas Baker brought to them and what the cars did really were a precursor to what was going to come in the 80s. But weirdly enough, they go and they just 80s it up in a weird way in 1980. Well, it's a weird thing. I think they kind of helped create the 80s in, in, in a way then with, they get their, sucked with into their the albums in the 70s. Right. And then in 1980, they decide maybe that they're not getting credit for anything but a po- I don't know why I can't get into the rationales behind it right. but they try to go into a much more yeah. like other things in the, they try to everybody's play, trying to be like the cars now they're trying to be like everybody they're trying to make what in. would later turn out to be a Depeche Mode record or something like that <laughs> right. um, I mean and, but you know the, by turning down the guitars and turning up the keyboards it, it makes the album sound a little artier and a little different uh, but still focused on the vocals and the hooks the problem to me on Panorama is that there are just way less melodies, lay less hooks this time around. On this record, I, they're really hard to come by. There are some interesting songs, but they're not as they're just they're not as hooky and tight, and they wander a little bit. Uh, they're longer a lot of the, some of the songs, mm-hmm. and and like I said, without Elliot Easton there ba- balancing out the keyboards. It's a lot blander in some ways. And the sound, they lose some of the thickness in trying to do that, in taking that low end out of things. There definitely is a pronounced lack of that. We're only going to play one song off this album, and we're going to leave you with it. Um, and I do think Touch and Go is a pretty good song. Uh, yeah, it's got some great a hooky chorus. It has a really... It's a little weird in some ways. They're trying to do some things like they've done on other songs, like uh, the juxtaposition of the new wave keyboards and the rockabilly guitars that work so well on best friend's girl whereas on this one on touch and go it's like you get this really icy cold sterile synth sound and synth chords like really distancing sort of sound and then you juxtapose against not really a rockabilly but almost like a bakersfield buck owens kind of cowboy poppy guitar sound which doesn't it's a weirder juxtaposition it's like a cousin to what they're doing on Best Friend's Girl, but it, it's a, it doesn't work quite as well. There's great moments in this song, but it I feel like they're trying to do something that they did well earlier in an even more extreme way. The the synths are more extreme, cold, and icy, and the guitars are more goofy, cowboy-y, but maybe they're too far apart. I don't know. Well, you I, make a good point, if I may. Two, two quick observations before we close up with this song from this record. That, you make an excellent point. It's just, I was going to bring back, well, we got to give them some credit. Maybe they were trying something different. They didn't want to do the same thing they did the first two records. They're doing record, record, year, year, year. So they're like, let's do something different. And it didn't work out for them. But also the songs, you make a valid point. The songs are just not as strong for whatever reason. Number two, I think not only the 80s sort of what will become the 80s and Depeche Mode was a good one, kind of absorbing them. But this was a period, and you and I have talked about it with Prince, this was a period where everyone started going to their camps. You know, you had your soul and, and R&B radio stations. You had your pop radio stations, your heavy rock. I think a lot of rock and roll fans from the late 70s, the punk New Wavers, they said, what happened to the car? What have they gone? What happened? Because they were in their camps. It's like they went to another camp. And I think that might have hurt them a little bit with their fans. Like you said, it, I know I was disappointed when I bought the record as opposed to the first two records. So maybe that's where it was. They just lost a little bit of their core audience, which, by the way, it's an interesting way to end this podcast because we'll begin the next podcast with Shake It Up, which brought us all back, I think. It brought me back. I love that record. Yeah, I did too. Um, 
I, I do think that the weakness of the band is when they lose their balance. I think uh, they can, they, way, they yeah. do great things yeah. still in those situations, but but it, it is their their strength is this weird combination of stuff. In the same way that like Bowie combined things in a weird art rock and very classic honky Nick Nick Mick Ronson guitars right uh, in his own way the cars combination of what they took from Bowie and Eno and Roxy music and T-Rex and what they took from just the the heavy classic rock music that had come before them that that incredible the distillation down into what is the cars is a really fascinating thing to me um uh, and when they're well, I'm just going on and on about it. We'll play no, Touch and Go. We'll point. be back next week, yeah. you know. And we'll play you some more as they sort of struggle through the later years when it's harder to come up with stuff. And they, you'll see, though, they find ways to do truly, truly great stuff, even as they're struggling with how to be a band. Right. Um, yep. And so fame. Yep. This is from their third album, Panorama, 1980. Touch and Go. Peace. And we'll see you next week late.